Welcome to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where guests chat with me about Michael Crichton's 1990 novel, Jurassic Park, and also not that too. My name's Ryan Rogers, and I'm a big dumb Jurassic Park fan. Welcome to episode 58, Destroying the World. I'm recording this on June 19th, 2023. Thank you for joining me today. A continued thank you to Christoph Oaks of Snail, S-N-A-L-E. You can check out his incredible album on Spotify and Bandcamp. Today's intro and song you're listening to is Sally Ride, and our outro is Shelter Dog uh, from his latest album. We've got a theme today. It's a bit of a heavy one as we're nearing the end of this novel, and it pertains to extinctions, global catastrophes, and as the chapter that we share this episode title with, we'll talk about destroying the world. First, we have some corrections. For a nation that's credited for creating French kissing and the city of love in Paris, I was surprised to learn that uh, Dance in the Tango was forbidden in Paris in the early 1900s. And uh, while it's not coming up soon, I've always wanted to celebrate Guy Fawkes Day. You know, burn something in effigy. But uh, but I always forget, and you'd think that Halloween would be a reminder, but I always forget the 5th of November, contrary to the popular rhyme. And, uh, and I knew nothing about Ronald Reagan's shooting. Only two months into his term, he was shot and wounded by John Hinckley Jr. Uh, and I only just heard of this, but years and years after the shooting, during a speech advocating for the fall of the Berlin Wall, a balloon popped... And it sounded similar to a gunshot, and he stopped mid-sentence, and he goes, "Missed me." <laughs> Pretty good to a rounding uh, to to a standing ovation, of course. I recall Jurassic Park is set in August 1989 during Reagan's presidency and before the fall of the Berlin Wall, as well. So if uh, you're looking to place this novel in in its context, that's where we are. Yeah. So in dinosaur news, uh, I've got a, a new animal you've almost surely never heard of, and because we're talking about the destroying the world, I've got a paper on when the world got screwed up at the end of the Triassic period. The first paper is from July 2022 from the journal Cretaceous Research called A New Alvarez Saurid Theropod Dinosaur from the Upper Cretaceous of Gobi Desert, Mongolia. Based on a partial skeleton from the Campanian-aged Berengoyat Formation at the Nemect Formation locality in Mongolia, a new Alvarez Saurid named Ondogurval Alifanovi was described. This late Cretaceous theropod differs from other Alvarez swords by having metatarsals 2 and 4 completely fused along their contact area. The phylogenetic analysis machine places Ondogurval with other more derived Alvarez swords called parvocursorines, like Shishianicus and Albinicus, which have proximally co-ossified metatarsals 2 and 4, but they are not completely fused, like an Ondogurvel. Now, Alvarezsaurids are strange because their forearms and claws are very distinct. These smaller bipedal animals have uh, had what appear to be basically a single digit on their very short, dramatically reduced hands and arms. This group of animals is named in honor of historian Gregorio Alvarez, who was the one who proposed uh, that the Cretaceous Paleogene extinction event was caused by an impact event. So here we are, the end of the world again. It's kind of the theme that's returning as we talk about this Alvarez sword. Uh, they are small, long-legged, highly specialized dinosaurs with stout forelimbs and compact, bird-like hands, massive breasts, and arm muscles. So they had a good, strong front end, uh, perhaps adapted for digging or tearing. And they had long, tube-shaped snouts 
filled with tiny teeth, which may have suggested they were adapted for preying upon insects, like termites, that sort of thing. They range from, you know, 50 centimeters to 2 meters in length, found in North and South America, although obviously that range is out of date. Uh, if this critter is found in Mongolia, at least one specimen of these animals shows feathers, and their speed-built legs may have specialized them for raiding nests in an egg-based diet. Parvocursorinae uh, is a subgroup of Elvarez swords with a specialized pinched foot. Some paleontologists used to refer to this group as Mononikinae back when that was described in 1998, but Parvocursorinae had priority because it was named first. Andogervel's name is derived from the Mongolian word Ando, meaning egg, and Gervel, meaning lizard, and honors the late Russian paleontologist Vladimir Alifanov who found the holotype specimen. So the name it means Alifanov's egg lizard. And the holotype PIN 5838-1, housed at the Paleontological Institute of Russian Academy of Sciences, was recovered from the Baron Goyot Formation. It's comprised of two dorsal vertebrae, three sacral vertebrae, a right ilium, left to right pubis and ischium, a right tibia, fibula, metatarsals, and phalanges, and the right carpometacarpus and some phalanx. All those pieces are there. All right, uh, the second paper today is Volcanic Temperature Changes, Modulated Volatile Release, and Climate Fluctuations at the End Triassic Mass Extinction from the journal Earth and Planetary Science Letters of February 2022. The paper says, whereas the mechanisms linking volcanism and environmental change are unclear, the author set out to provide, quote, new insight into these linkages by measuring the abundance of both sedimentary 5-6 to six ring polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons and mercury from the strata deposited in shallow marine environmental coat environments across the Entriassic event at the global stratotype section and point Kujok section in Austria and St. Audrey's Bay section in the UK. It's a mouthful. The Entriassic event was 202 million years ago and it killed off all the big reptiles ruling the planet, leaving it vacant for dinosaurs to repopulate. Without this mass extinction, dinosaurs don't rule the earth, much as mammals wouldn't if the Cretaceous extinction hadn't rocked the world as well. The world at that time was, quote, generally hot and steamy during the Triassic period, which preceded the extinction, and this paper presents, quote, the first physical evidence that Triassic dinosaur species, then a minor group, largely relegated to the polar regions, regularly endured freezing conditions. The paper is paraphrased at phys.org, where they say, quote, the paper cites dinosaur footprints along with odd rock fragments that only could have been deposited by ice to argue their point. Further, they add, quote, the study's authors say that during the extinction, cold snaps already happening at the poles spread to lower latitudes, killing off the cold-blooded reptiles. Dinosaurs already adapted for surviving at the cold polar regions survived the evolutionary bottleneck and spread out, and the rest is ancient history. Now, I've heard a theory, though I can't find out, I, I couldn't cite where it came from, so I'm Apologies to everyone involved, but it was that dinosaurs found themselves after the Triassic extinction event down in the southern Antarctic area. Think of like Australia, Antarctica, and South Africa, that sort of thing, where the land mass was sort of together down at the southern pole. And this specific area may have served as like an escape pod or a final bastion of safety for organisms during the terrifically devastating end Triassic event. And as the Pangean supercontinent began to split apart, it bled lava. Uh, from Stephen Brissetti's Rise and Fall of the Dinosaurs, he said, quote, The Earth's outer crust is pulled apart and thins, decreasing pressure on the deeper parts of the Earth. As pressure lessens, magma from the deeper Earth rises to the surface and erupts through volcanoes. If there is only a little rip in the crust, two small bits of a continent separating from each other, let's say, 
then the effects aren't too bad. You might get a few volcanoes, some lava and ash, some local destruction, and then eventually it stops. That kind of thing is happening in East Af Eastern Africa today, and it's far from catastrophic. But if you're slashing apart an entire supercontinent, then you approach the realm of apocalypse. And you can imagine Africa and South America separating and leaving that, that, uh, that space in between. Quote, at the very end of the Triassic, 201 million years ago, the world was violently remade. For 40 million years, Pangaea had been gradually splintering apart, and magma had been welling underground. Now, that supercontinent had finally cracked. The magma had somewhere to go. Like a hot air balloon rising through the sky, the liquid rock reservoir rushed upward, broke through the shattered surface of Pangaea, and gushed out onto the land. These end Triassic eruptions were different from any that humans have ever witnessed. Over a period of some 600,000 years, there were four big pulses of drama. When enormous amounts of lava would surge out of the Pangean Rift Zone like tsunamis from hell. I'm hardly exaggerating, says Steve Brissotti. Some of the flows were added up together up to 3,000 feet thick. They could have buried the Empire State Building twice over. In all, some 3 million square miles of central Pangaea were drowned in lava. Quote, it goes without saying that this was a bad time to be a dinosaur or, for that matter, any other type of animal. These were some of the largest volcanic eruptions in Earth history. Not only did lava smother the land, but noxious gases that rode up with the lava poisoned the atmosphere and caused runaway global warming. These things triggered one of the biggest mass extinctions in the history of life, a mass die-off that claimed over 30% of all species and maybe much more. And only with a clean slate, a complete etch-a-sketching of the planet, does a new species come to dominate. And dinosaurs did. And they moved in, replaced the crocodiles and the archosaurus from before them. But to reiterate, this extinction event wasn't just a couple hot seasons that created drought and famine. It was hundreds of thousands of years of hellfire. Destroying the world, and the dinosaurs survived because, according to this news item, they had adapted resilience toward colder climates in the polar regions of Pangaea. And in this nightmarish millennia that followed, life found a way. All right, with the corrections and the dinosaur news out of the way, please let me introduce you to my special guest this episode. I want to introduce you all to my special guest. We first met uh, at a coffee shop called Carlos and Charlie's at the departure building of the San Francisco airport back in August 1989, where my guest and I met in secrecy prior to a secret business trip. At this meeting, he handed me an innocuous Gillette foamy shaving cream canister, as well as a bag containing $750,000 in cash in agreement so that I could steal 15 different frozen embryos from Jurassic Park. We have Dodson here. Let me introduce my guest today is Professor of Anatomy Emeritus at University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine, research associate at the Academy of Natural Sciences of Philadelphia, and the author of The Horned Dinosaurs, A Natural History, and co-author of The Dinosauria, as well as a globetrotter, a namer of dinosaurs, a field worker, and mentor. Please welcome the paleontologist, professor, and I'm told a pretty terrific guy, Dr. Peter Dodson today. Thanks for joining me, Peter. How are you? <laughs> I'm fine. I'm fine. Uh... <laughs> Thank you. How are you, Ryan? I'm pretty good, thank you. This morning, yeah, you're just uh, you're just telling me that uh, you, you past the pandemic, you've retired 47 years in the field, and uh, as a as a tribute, all of your past students came together to write. You called it a festschrift, which uh, in, for the July issue of the Anatomical Record, where uh, the entire edition was your students publishing on details and stuff like that in honor of uh, all of that you've contributed to their careers. So that that must have been quite the the honor for you. Oh, it sure was. It sure was. And I, I, I think the number one legacy of my career is my students. Mm -hmm. and they're, they're terrific. You know, one, one of my students is the director of the New Mexico Museum of Natural History. And another of my students is the 
past president of the, of the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology, oh, wow. and another of my students is is a curator of paleontology at the Carnegie Museum of Natural History, and another of my students just started a, a position at Cornell University, and another students just started a position at the University of Florida. So you know, <laughs> and another of my students is at the uh, Institute for Vertebrate Paleontology and Paleoanthropology in Beijing. So they. <laughs> I'm well represented around the world. That's right. That's incredible. Well, that, what a wonderful uh, legacy to leave behind, for sure. It's a, when they say you can't take it with you, it's what you leave behind, and, and that uh, that's certainly a big part of it, isn't it? Yes, indeed. <laughs> Congratulations are due. I think you know, and thank you for for finding some time for me this morning. A, this is terrific. So uh, I'll first start off by asking you first and foremost about Jurassic Park. When this came out, I had been infatuated with dinosaurs my whole life. And it's possible I was just about to grow out of the phase when dinosaurs were cool, but then Jurassic Park became a thing, and it uh, it probably hooked me all over again. But surely you weren't at such an uh, an impressionable age when Jurassic Park came out. Uh, but did you get caught up in the excitement of the film or or, or the novel? Well, I, it is true. I was well into my career uh, at this time. Uh, and what was the date? Was it 1991? I I, I didn't actually review the date. <laughs> 1990 for the book. 93 for the film. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. The 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 the, the film was stunning. Mm-hmm. The, the film was absolutely stunning. Uh, youngsters today just sort of uh, take for granted the uh, the uh, recon the animations and and, and uh, uh, reconstructions and all that sort of thing. Uh, the the uh, gra- the graphics industry is staggering. Back back in those days, we were enthralled by the stu- uh, studio known as industrial light and magic in california and and of course the the jurassic park movie was one one of their most spectacular early fruits uh it was star wars and it was uh it was jurassic park star wars a bit earlier but the reconstructions of dinosaurs are absolutely stunning and just totally convincing so uh, i i was a little gaga (laughs) for sure yeah, definitely. I think um, the animatronics alone, they were like almost flight simulators, each of them, which is pretty impressive that they, uh, they what they invested in making the, the, the practical effects work. Yes, no, exactly. I think that CGI gets too much credit. The, the, the practical effects were really special in that film. They sure were. They sure <laughs> were. So um, if, if Jurassic Park wasn't one of those things that kind of influenced uh, your interest in dinosaurs, was there a book or a piece of media, a film or anything like that, that did make a strong impression on you at an impressionable age uh, that inspired you to get into paleontology? Well, the answer to that is yes. Uh, bearing in mind, I, I really I really am an old guy. I was born in 1946. Uh, and... The thing that, and there, there just wasn't much stuff back yeah. then, and there weren't very many people doing paleontology back then. Uh, so uh, interest in dinosaurs was a little bit esoteric, uh, but uh, somehow I, man- I, I managed to get the bug. Now, when I was about six years old, my mother took me to see the movie, uh, the Walt Disney movie Fantasia. Mm-hmm. My mother loved classical music, and, and Fantasia was filled with the most glorious uh, classical music. But in there, uh, of course, is the the dinosaur sequence. It was uh, by uh, uh, set to uh, Igor Stravinsky's The Rite of Spring, and 
there was a very very vivid sequence of, of dinosaurs marching uh, <laughs> marching their way to extinction. Of course, <laughs> back then we didn't know about asteroid impacts. It was volcanoes and that sort of thing. Uh, but it 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 just rendered <laughs> rendered my soul. I mean, it was just uh, it was just stunned by this and and, and thrilled by this and. It really hit. It really stuck with me. That that was the thing. Definitely, and uh, certainly with the the film Jurassic Park, the musical score that accompanies the film certainly contributes to the to the extraordinary effect and the memorable nature of, of oh, all the impressions. Yes. And I imagine it's Fantasia really, would be uh, identical. That the uh, the music would resonate with you so strongly that you would connect even better with uh, with what was on the screen. Definitely, I can see that for sure. Plus, yeah, it's a very memorable part. <laughs> <laughs> of the of Fantasia. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, my father was a biology professor and uh, so he encouraged my my interest and so he'd give me books and what one of my all-time favorite books was a book by uh, Edwin Colbert called The Dinosaur Book and had beautiful pictures in it, you know, photographs of skeletons and fieldwork and and all that sort of thing and absolutely fueled my imagination mm -hmm. and i still have that copy the the uh, book jacket is kind of tattered and all that <laughs> but it is signed by colbert himself wow uh, i i i got to know colbert he was the uh, curator of paleontology at the american museum of natural history in new york and a, a wonderful writer and a wonderful man mm -hmm. and uh, so i have fondest memories of him and his signature on my book which is it makes it all the more valuable. Mm -hmm. I've heard a couple of tales of uh, Mr. Colbert being a terrific guy. That's that's really cool. Um, oh, and having oh, yeah, nice. the, the 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 autograph is very special too. I bet you. So um, you mentioned yes. that the Fantasia does something to inspire you in your youth to to pursue this, and then of course um, it looks like that you've authored a few books that look like they were intended to also inspire and fuel a passion for for dinosaurs aimed at perhaps younger audiences, uh, including the Age of Dinosaurs, which came out. It looks like also around 1993. Um, in terms of like, we hear about your students, but at the same time, these, some of these books look like they're for for a younger audience. What was a uh, what did it mean to be able to try and inspire or promote an inspiration in in dinosaurs through as, as an author? What what made you feel like that was also a good way to to spread the love? <laughs> well, it's it's. Um... Uh, it's a real privilege. Uh, it's a real privilege, and I've had some good luck. Uh, there, I have a I have a wonderful book. Uh, it was published. Oh, I, I forget when. I, no, I guess it was in the nineties. Now that I think of it, uh, called an alphabet of dinosaurs. Okay. And it was yeah, it was uh, dinosaurs from A to Z. And uh, I was first uh, brought into the project to uh, be a uh, to be a consultant on the project and to, to help them select all the dinosaurs from, the, from A to Z. Uh, uh, A was Ankylosaurus and Z was the Phyrosaurus. And, and so I, I selected the dinosaurs and I uh, worked with the artist, Wayne Barlow, brilliant art, artist, and uh, provided him anatomical reference material for, the, for him to do his very imaginative and beautiful paintings. But about halfway through the project, they said to me, uh, well, would you mind writing uh, a, a few words for each dinosaur we mm -hmm. describe? And I said to them, well, consultants don't usually do that <laughs> sort of thing. There's, there's, a, there's a word for people that put words between covers. It's author. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> so they said, okay, okay, we'll make you an author. They didn't pay me any more. As a matter of fact, I was shamefully exploited on, oh, well. on that book. Uh, but at least, uh, you know, it, it, it came out uh, uh, Dodson and Barlow. Uh, <laughs> so I have that satisfaction. Such a nice way to reach a younger, a younger audience. And I, I can't tell you how many copies uh, of the book I've signed. Uh, oh, cool. Uh, so it's a great privilege. That's really, well, I guess there's a yin and yang to that story, but, <laughs> um, but really cool yeah, nonetheless. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I think of the, the positive, not the negative. <laughs> um, so one of my earliest guests on the show was a, a Dr. Jordan Mallon at the Canadian Museum of Nature up in Ottawa, and I was excited to see that it's, yes. a, it's a bit of a small world finding that you spent some of your career in paleontology, not only in just Ottawa, but also in Canada, and so I was... Um, you know, taking kind of like a peripheral look at your or uh, at your uh, resume, and it and you show that you were an undergrad in Ottawa, earned your master's at the University of Alberta, and then you know Yale. But uh, <laughs> I understand that you you know came up from the states. Where did you grow up, and um, and what kind of a role did I guess Canada influence in in terms of what sort of things you got to start your career working on? Well, I was born in California when my father was a, as I mentioned, he was a biologist. Uh, he was a graduate student when I was born. He spent the first 10 years of his academic career at the University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana. Then when I was 11 years old, he moved the whole family to Canada. Mm -hmm. We moved to Ottawa and he became a professor of biology at the University of Ottawa. I actually lived at home when I was an undergraduate attending the University of Ottawa. Uh, then I did the master's degree at the University of Alberta. Well, I, I should back up to my undergraduate <laughs> days in Ottawa. When I enrolled at the uh, University of Ottawa, I had said I wanted to be a paleontologist. And they said, okay, good, go stand in that line. <laughs> and I found myself in the line for the, for the geology department. So I was an undergraduate geologist. And in my, uh, the, the summer before my senior year, uh, my professors arranged for me to uh, have a summer work position at the National Museum of Canada, as it was then called. Mm -hmm. It was a, the old building at Sussex and George, where the music, where the fossil collections were, and oh, it just absolutely blew my mind. And the young paleontologist there was Dr. Dale Russell, uh, who spent 30 years at the National Museum. So. I didn't realize what an immense privilege that was. Oh, I, I got to go into work every day and work on a eight-foot section of uh, Albertosaurus, and I got to chip away, uh, peel back plaster and chip away at the rock, because this, this specimen I worked with had been collected by the Sternbergs uh, in, in the 1930s. Yeah. And, oh, I mean, it, just, uh, it was just a dream position. And Dale Russell, uh, who is very young man, unfortunately he's now passed away, was tremendously inspirational, tremendously supportive of me. Mm -hmm. And he proposed my master's project in Alberta. Uh, so I, I went out to Alberta after uh, to do my master's and worked on, at Dinosaur Provincial Park uh, with a project that Dale had, had uh, set for me. So I've worked in places all around the world but there isn't a place more filled with fossils, mm. uh, with high-quality fossils, than Alberta. They're just staggering, mm -hmm. just staggering. Uh, you, you can take the boy out of Canada, but you can <laughs> never take the Canada out of the boy. That's, so, that's, that's what I say as a paleontologist. So if we go to the Canadian Museum of Nature and we look at the Albertosaurus they have on 
display, will that be the, the, the specimen that you were working on? No, no, absolutely okay. not. No. Mine, uh, mine was, a, was an incomplete specimen. I can't, I, to be honest, after all these years, I can't remember whether, uh, what the other parts of it were. But I, my block was about eight feet long and included uh, the vertebrae, uh, the lower part of the spinal back, the, the pelvis, and the beginning of the tail. Okay. But as so, so many specimens there are incomplete. And so uh, the fate of most specimens is that once, oh, it's not, uh, many specimens never get out of the plaster jackets. They're yeah. in seemingly eternal storage. But the ones that get prepped, most of them, unless they're spectacular, uh, go into storage cabinets or on, on storage racks in museum basements and don't see the light of day. Mm-hmm. I suppose there's so much to be, they're like old books that nobody's opened up, but they gotta be unlocked a little bit first. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I do have one specimen uh, that I'll, I'll just comment on. I found a, a uh, what turned out to be a rather beautiful specimen of a duckbill dinosaur, Lambiosaurus, in Alberta. I was working there in 1982. I was based in Philadelphia then. Uh, but I, I came upon uh, some bones sticking. I was prospecting by myself in uh, their Tyrrell cruise near Royal Tyrrell Museum cruise, not far away. Uh, I was camping with them and working with them, and I saw a, a, a four vertebrae sticking out of the ground. There were four vertebrae in a row, and about you know a couple of feet away, there was a, a, a shoulder blade in an upper arm bone, a humerus, lying on the ground. I said, hmm. You know, in seemingly life positions. I said, huh, that could be good. So I, I was by myself. So what I did is I built a little cairn of rocks and put some uh, orange surveying tape on it. And we went back to camp that night. I told my colleagues, I said, oh, I found a specimen you might just want to check out. This <laughs> is 1982. That was significant. As, as luck would have it, the, the proverbial, it was the proverbial last day of my field season. Mm-hmm. So I, I left and drove back to Philadelphia, and I never heard another word about it. And the next summer I came back, uh, I went to Drumheller, and they said, oh, Peter, would you like to, uh, to see the skeleton you found? I said, what? And they said, oh yeah, it turned into a beautiful specimen. Well, it turned out it was essentially complete, a complete Lambiosaurus. Wow. And as I say, so many specimens never see the light of day you know the public would never see them but uh and again the year is significant in 1983 the the royal Tyrrell museum in drumheller was under construction and it opened in i think in 1985 and the royal Tyrrell museum of paleontology and I, ryan i hope you've been there yeah is simply one of the most spectacular dinosaur museums in the world it's wonderful. And lo and behold, my Lambiosaurus is right in there. It had a skull. It had a, you know, it was a very complete specimen. It was the most complete specimen I've ever found in my life. And the, the irony is I didn't get to excavate it. That was, that, was, that was kind of a bummer. But I'm very proud that it's there. And I love seeing that skeleton. <laughs> to me, that would be a dream. You just yeah. say, hey, how about uh, all of you guys dig here? And I'll just, uh, I'll catch up with you in two years. How's that? <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. really cool. uh, just for the record, Lambiosaurus was described in 19, 
1823 by Professor Parks from Toronto, mm -hmm. and it was named in honor of Lawrence Lamb, who was the paleontologist at, at in in Ottawa at the National Museum of Canada, mm -hmm. um, of whom Charles M. Sternberg was the successor. That's really cool. I know that uh, in, in old like in, Jordan Mellon. Yes, in the uh, in the dinosaur train uh, cartoon, they make sure that they. It's Larry Lambiosaurus, so that uh, he's also named after uh, Mr. Lamb, so that's pretty cool. <laughs> yes. So one of the things I, I checked out was, uh, I know that when Ernst Stromer was uh, the paleontologist from the 1800s who was uh, out in Egypt and he was, you know, a Spinosaurus, and he entered the Egyptian desert, it looked like in search of ancient mammals, and I think that Roy Chapman Andrews is said to have been uh, searching for mammals in Mongolia when he instead found Ovaraptor and Protoceratops and things like that. I understand that... Uh, Othniel Charles Marsh is also named countless mammals, but they over get they get overshadowed by the dinosaurs they find instead, <laughs> which is which is neat. But uh, you know there were there were mammoths and rhinos and elephants and sloths and saber toothed cats and those little horses and funny camels, uh, and they were all really cool. Um, when you get out into the field and stuff like that, did you go looking for one thing and find something else? Um, did you come across a lot of like turtles and mammals and stuff like that instead? What, uh, what beyond the dinosaurs, which kind of overshadows some of the other really cool things that are found? What have you come across? The least thing that I've ever found uh, are are dinosaur skeletons. Okay, I've collected literally thousands of dinosaur teeth. Uh, at one point, uh, I did a study uh, in Alberta in which I counted. Uh, 5,000 teeth that I had collected, but in my entire career on, in, around the world, I've only found two uh, reasonably complete skeletons. <laughs> so, skele complete skeletons are 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 really hard to come by. Although they're more common in Alberta than most other places on Earth, mm -hmm. but yes, one of the great things is. There's so many other kinds of animals. So yes, we we find lots of crocodilian remains. We find we find lots of turtle remains. We find uh, an aquatic reptile called a, a, a champsosaur, which looks like a, a crocodile, but is more uh, more related to lizards. There are mammalian remains, but they're quite tiny, and especially the, sometimes it's just single teeth. So those are very hard to come by, and I, I haven't found very many of those. And there are even plant remains. There's fossil wood in Alberta. There, there's all sorts of things. Though the one thing that uh, Dinosaur Park is not so good for is leaves. Okay. Uh, we had a, a famous paleobotanist came to visit us. And he said, well, I, I know why they don't call it Leaf Provincial Park. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, oh, there are lots of fish remains. There's a freshwater ray, which is really nice. A few shark teeth, but not so common. And marine reptiles, uh, plesiosaur remains. So Alberta provide, gives us a very broad analysis of uh, uh, permits a very broad analysis of ecosystems so it's not just dinosaurs but all all the cast of supporting uh, characters mm -hmm. uh, you know, the, the dinosaurs are at the uh, at the apex of the pyramid so to speak when I worked in Egypt uh, we we found a fossil that really uh, it was very curious it uh, we found that we found a skull and the skull was clearly of dinosaurian size. It was uh, the skull was uh, it was in pieces, but it was uh, it was probably three feet long. But um, 
it was it was not a dinosaur, uh, nor was it a crocodile. I, I, it, we really struggled. As a matter of fact, we we brought photographs of up to Ottawa and showed it to uh, the uh, ichthyologist, paleoichthyologist there, Dr. Steve Kumba. And uh, Steve looked at it and said, "Oh, that's a that's a gigantic coelacanth." Oh wow! Uh, 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 a fish. Yeah, it, it was it was a coelacanth of dinosaurian size. It was uh, it was really something. It was called uh, Mawsonia gigas, which means uh, gigas meaning gigantic. Yeah. Uh, so the it's about four meters long. This this thing. So we found a, a nice skull. Matter of fact, a couple of skulls. And a student of mine did her PhD on on that specimen. So you go out hoping to find dinosaurs, and maybe you find dinosaurs, or maybe you find something else. Mm -hmm. You can't be too fussy. That's really interesting. So when you're finding shark teeth and you're finding uh, evidence of rays, and I suppose, and that's in Alberta, that would be that would suggest that you're right on the coast of that uh, of that inland sea in the Lake Cretaceous. Is that right? That's pretty good evidence. So yes, that's pretty. Uh, Pretty good evidence that you're close to the close to the shoreline. Okay. So, do you think dinosaurs were? I guess there would be lots of rivers which would flow into it, and maybe you could drink from that. Can do you think dinosaurs were able to consume salted water? Is that possible? Oh boy, that, that's a question I hadn't thought too much about. Um, I, I, um, uh, my guess is they could tolerate it. Okay. Uh, they might not have loved it. Uh, but uh, various reptiles have uh, means, or even even birds have means for excreting excess salt. salt. So if you if you live close to the water, chances are you have uh, special physiological mechanisms for uh, dumping uh, excess salt. Mm -hmm. There there are ducts that work between fresh water and and salt water. Uh, maybe fresh water in the in the in the summertime and salt water in the winter time or whatever but they have um salt glands in the orbits in the in the eye socket mm -hmm. and uh, and sometimes uh, salt is excreted through the nose and literally puff salt smoke out their noses oh, wow um, really that'd be crazy okay there are, yeah 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 i think that's what um uh, th there are uh, there's a, a group of birds called the tube-nosed birds albatrosses and their relatives and those tubes are an exit point for uh, excess salt. Interesting. So they're, 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 they're means of dealing with salt. I wonder if this is where we get the, the crocodile tears expression from, where they're just excreting, excreting big yeah, lobes of salt. Probably so, yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. Oh, they're just sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, I found notes that said that you uh, uh, specialize specifically on only sauropods, hadrosaurs, and ceratopsians, which is still a huge swath of the uh, the dinosaur family. And I was wondering, what was it about some of these groups that, uh, that commanded your attention, that drew your career into looking at those more closely? It's somewhat serendipitous. Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately, you're, you're studying what you find. Uh, when, when you work in Alberta, working on uh, duckbill dinosaurs is rather a natural because they're so common there. And that was part of uh, the... My PhD dissertation was a study of Canadian duckbill dinosaurs. Although most of my studies since then, uh, and, and uh, sauropods happen uh, serendipitously to me. We found one in, in uh, Montana in 1999. 
So I studied that, and then, then a couple of Chinese sauropods came my way, by way of my Chinese students, and uh, those were fun to work with. Of all the dinosaurs, the ones that I've most made a name uh, with are horned dinosaurs. Mm. And it, was a, it wasn't the result of a great life plan, but they, they <laughs> happened. One of the chapters of my dissertation at Yale uh, was on Protoceratops, the uh, horned dinosaur from Mongolia. And uh, that, that was a very satisfying study, but I didn't, I didn't know in, in, back in those early days that if that would lead to anything else or not. But uh, you know, I finished my PhD in, in, uh, at Yale in 1974, and about, oh, I was gonna say 10 years later, but it was, it was not 10 years later, it was seven years later, I got a report of a small horned dinosaur from uh, Montana, and I was, well, no, no, I, I, I got invited to examine a collection of bones from a ranch in Montana, and uh, not knowing what I was going to see. And among them, there were lots of duckbill dinosaur bones, but among them was a skeleton of a small horned dinosaur, and, and that was very exciting to me. And there's a long story there, but uh, the bones were first found by a commercial collector who worked on a ranch in Montana with the uh, permission of the rancher, of course. And he, he had no idea what he had. And, and uh, I saw this, the remains of a small horned dinosaur. First, I found the, the uh, parietal bone, which formed the frill. Uh, then I saw a, a squamosal bone that, uh, that formed the side of the frill that clicked right in place. And and I was just jumping up and down with excitement. This is a, it was a basically I was in a rock shop in South Dakota seeing these these bones, and the uh, collector had no idea what he had. Turned out they had the major part of the skeleton. And as I say, this was small. The, the dinosaur was only about seven feet long. It, and having studied Protoceratops, I knew that small horned dinosaurs are very rare. Uh, certainly rare in the United States. And so th there was the possibility in my mind that this this uh, might be a new new horned dinosaur. And so I, I, through a long process, I managed to get the bones to Philadelphia. They're at the Academy of Natural <laughs> Sciences in Philadelphia. And I studied it and it was indeed new. And so I named it Avaceratops uh, in 1985. So the, this was the first time I'd had the opportunity to describe something new because up to this point in my career, I was revising uh, species that had been described 40 or 50 years earlier. And quite honestly, I thought that all the horned dinosaurs had already been discovered. The, the, <laughs> uh, the, the last time a new horned dinosaur was described was by uh, Charlie Sternberg in Ottawa who described Pachyrhinosaurus uh, in 1951. So here it was, uh, 1986, I guess it was, that I published Avaceratops. Uh, so 25, it was the first new horned dinosaur in, in 35 years. Wow. So I, th I thought we knew everything there was to know about horned dinosaurs. And oh, was I wrong. Oh my, yeah. Uh, but at any rate, uh, the, the, the timing was very good. I published my study in 86. I happened to be in, in Ottawa uh, in 1985-1986 on sabbatical leave, and I was working with Dale Russell at the Canadian Museum of Nature, and we were writing the Dinosauria at that time. 
So I was assigned the uh, chapter on horned dinosaurs, and uh, it was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity to. Uh, I, I, I was riding surrounded by all these beautiful skulls in the, in the Sternberg Skulls in Ottawa, so I could really immerse myself in the subject. So I, I became quite expert in horned dinosaurs. So I've read a bit about the Avaceratops. It looks like you named it after, was it Ava Cole? That's right, that's right. right. And then the, the so she was genus the name was of... the Lammers family, so that's kind of neat. Yeah. So these are people who helped uh, discover the, the specimen. Exactly. There, right? That's right, that's right, that's right. The, the, Lammers, are, the Lammers family are the ranchers, and uh, Eddie and Ava Cole were a pair of husband and wife fossil collectors. There's another story there, and that is that uh, uh, sometimes you see in print that that my wife's name is Ava. Well, my wife's name is not Ava. Right. <laughs> Definitely not. And it turns out I, I learned mm, a number of years after the fact that it's a bit of a marital faux pas to name a dinosaur after another woman when you haven't named one after your wife. <laughs> and it 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 took me. Uh, almost 20 years before I had the opportunity to uh, uh, name, name a dinosaur after my wife. Uh, and uh, that opportunity came in China. I visited China in 19, uh, 2004, and I visited a lab in, in uh, Lanzhou in, in uh, north central China. And I saw a dinosaur skull sitting on the lab bench, and I took one look at it. And I knew instantly mm -hmm. that this was this was new. It had never been seen before, never been described. And uh, I was invited to study it along with my students. And so finally, I had my opportunity to uh, <laughs> uh, name a dinosaur after my wife. And uh, I, the way the way I tell the story is that the skull was old and rather ugly. And I said, "Oh, let's name it after my wife." Oh dear. <laughs> I always tell her. <laughs> no, fortunately, my wife is not is, is certainly uh, certainly not not ugly, not in the least. But so we named the dinosaur Aurora Ceratops. Mm -hmm. uh, her her name is Dawn, and so Aurora in Latin is 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 Dawn, and yeah. so that's Aurora Ceratops. That's really pretty. And that's good. Even though I tell the story about it being old and ugly, she still really likes that she has a dinosaur <laughs> named after her. So. <laughs> I, just I say, do have a um, Chinese dinosaur named after myself. Okay. Uh, and uh, my student, my Chinese student, uh, Yu Hailu, completed his PhD in China at you know at my university in 2002. And then he went back to China, and the first thing he did was he named a dinosaur after me, uh, a horned dinosaur, of course, mm -hmm. and it was named uh, Magni Rostris Dodsoni, which means Dodson's big nose. Okay. <laughs> well, that's very kind of him, I guess. It, it turns out it's the dinosaur that has the big nose, yes. not, not me. When a dinosaur is named after you, do you get like a phone call? Like uh, when you're called to the Hall of Fame or something, did they, they give you a heads up or, or do you just read about it one day? Uh, he didn't tell me he was going to do it. Okay. Uh, he just sent it to me and... Uh, there it was. Well, that's and cute. I was taken by surprise, and I was certainly, of course, pleased. That's a touching uh, kudos in your a feather in your hat, right? 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Now, I came across another item which might have been named after you. They say that it is, and it is an extinct frog from the Judith River Formation, and it honors all the contributions you made to the paleoecological research in the Judith River Formation. Um, And so this would be, I guess, a very old frog. Um, How did you hear about that one? Yes. um, Again, I'm not sure that they telegraphed the move. (laughs) I think they sent me the paper after the fact. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was the first time a fossil was named after me. And I forget what the year was. Was it 1991? It was a good long while ago. I might have a note Um, here. It says 2001. How's that? Oh, 2001. Yeah, yeah. So it was a very nice honor, and I appreciate it. But it's a, it's a little bit frustrating uh, in that I don't know the first thing about fossil frogs. Okay. I could not identify the fossil if I had one, and it's so uh, it's so small. It probably isn't a centimeter long. That mm. uh, if you were hiking, it could get stuck in the in the tread of your boot, and you wouldn't know it was there. <laughs> mm. Well, I look at the description so of the it specimen. Was very small. The specimen says that it's a large right ilium missing most of the shaft and left ilium. So there's not a lot there. And certainly if it's a frog, it ain't uh, ain't going to be much. But it's still something. Oh, yeah, no, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it, that's a specialty study, studying the, the uh, uh, fragmentary remains of uh, small animals. We mm-hmm. call those microvertebrates. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's not that they're truly microscopic, but it, it is that, because they're, they're so small, they're, they're best studied under a low-power binocular microscope. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sort of in contrast to dinosaurs where one, uh, yes. where, where you trip over them, but you, they don't stick to the bottom of your, your boot. Well, I have heard that, uh, like, looking for those mammalian teeth, that they'll use um, a sifter and then look at the remains under a microscope to see what is what. And most of it's rock and some of it is teeth. And... Uh, that's amazing in terms of like maybe you can't learn a whole lot but but it contributes a lot to the idea that the biodiversity is represented well but with these scant little remains maybe you don't learn a lot about the frog but knowing that there are frogs means that there is an ecosystem which supports them and they're part of the food chain and it does kind of contribute to the the greater picture that's very well expressed it's very well expressed so what it says that you you know were recognized for your contributions to understanding about the judith river formation what would the judith river formation have looked like back when it was rocking instead of just rock? Well, I'll tell you, there, there's a certain nomenclatorial irony here. <laughs> uh, when <laughs> with the, the uh, Judith River Formation has been studied for, uh, for quite a long t- while, well back into the 19th century. And when Canadian fossils uh, first uh, started being discovered by uh, Lawrence Lamb, for example, um, his field notes talk about the pale beds. That was the identifier, the pale beds. Later on, uh, it was it was named the Old Man Formation. So okay. uh, Sternberg, uh, Charlie Sternberg, uh, worked during the from the teens uh, to to 1950 or so, referred to the, to the Old Man Formation. Uh, and when I started working with Dale Russell. It, it was still the old man formation because we were very influenced by Sternberg. But uh, then then the term Judith River came along and 
uh, it was it was determined that on stratigraphic uh, grounds, the, so the, Judith, the type formation of the Judith or the Judith River is in Montana, mm -hmm. and so uh, and uh, dinosaur fossils were known from there, but they weren't that abundant. But it was determined that Judith River formation of Montana occupied exactly the same stratigraphic position as the old man. So they said, oh, it's arbitrary, so we'll, we'll call it the, uh, uh, the uh, Judith River formation. So for that period of time, in the 70s and 80s, we stopped using the term old man and we're using Judith River formation. But then uh, when uh, David Eberth became active at the uh, uh, Tyrrell Museum, and, uh, David e Eberth is a wonderful stratigrapher, and they decided that the Alberta formations uh, deserved, uh, were distinctive enough that they deserved a separate designation as the Dinosaur Park formation. Oh, I, I, there's another another group, uh, term in there besides old man. It was the Belly River formation. Oh, really? That was the Belly River group. So I worked mainly in what was then the Judith River formation of, of Alberta, uh, and less in, in uh, Montana. But uh, Carroll's Creek was in the Judith River proper of Montana. But when that when Nespersius was published in 2001, we were still using the term Judith River. So uh, mm. Makes me more of an expert <laughs> than, than uh, I actually am. And as Perseus is the name of the frog, I don't think I'd mentioned it uh, in case anybody were wondering. Well, that's interesting. So when we get into these rural badlands that uh, are certainly less populated, uh, I suppose that they, they're formally part of like uh, municipalities and things like that. But uh, do you find that these informal names in these less populated areas still are in play? Like it's technically this, or it's like, you know, according to the state formerly known as this, but you still have the very local uh, names for, for, for the areas you go to? I think uh, given the, the importance of young people in, in paleontology, they're young and they're eager, they're energetic, and they're absolutely up to date. So <laughs> my impression is that usually the proper terms are used. There, there sometimes is a problem in Northern Montana because for, for a long time, Relatively few fossils were known from Montana. The equivalent beds in Alberta, extremely productive, but uh, in Montana, high-quality fossils are much rarer. Uh, but in northern Montana, there can be uh, the the borders is rather arbitrary, and there is a question: uh, we use the term <laughs> Judas River, do we use uh, Dinosaur Park, uh, you know, or? But for the most part, uh, we, we try to use the best terms that are available. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that you thought that maybe ceratopsians had kind of been understood to a point, and then you were absolutely, I guess, astonished to learn how much more biodiversity was going to come forth from the rock after a, a career. Certainly over the span of the, those 47 years, what were some of the most surprising discoveries or, or watershed moments that, that really changed or influenced or, I don't know, affected paleontology in a lot of important ways. What, what are some of the things that you felt were like watershed moments that really took dinosaurs to another level? Not so much a, a moment as a, as a movement, I would mm -hmm. say. The Royal Terrell Museum of Paleontology has been of immense importance. Uh, they've, they've uh, you know, Phil Curry and, and, um, and his associates 
uh, have just me and uh, 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 Phil uh, a very long at the Terrell Museum, but now at the University of Alberta. Uh, dinosaur studies have not lagged at, at the Terrell, but have been taken up by a new gener generation, uh, Caleb uh, Brown and uh, Francois Terrien and, and and those folks and Darla Zelensky uh, at the University of Calgary. So they've been extremely successful in exploiting Southern Alberta, and not just at Dinosaur Park, but going be, uh, down toward in, in, uh, extreme Southern Alberta, uh, down towards the Montana border. They have many important discoveries. So, so I, I think they, they, there's been a tremendous uh, impact. Um, uh, Michael Ryan uh, at, at the Cleveland Museum, and uh, Canadian Michael Ryan, uh, of course, and um, Jordan Mellon and uh, David Evans at the University of Toronto, all working out in Alberta, uh, making uh, very important finds. So every time that I think the work is, uh, Alberta is stagnated, it blossoms again afresh. Mm -hmm. So I, I discovered that the the number of ceratopsians had doubled by 2013 and they're just all sorts of interesting new ceratopsians so mm -hmm. uh that that's what has had a great impact for me so these guys have done their very best to put my my book on the horned dinosaurs uh, out of date <laughs> but for good reason i guess <laughs> oh the best reason yes that's fascinating to hear that the ceratopsians of course have, have uh so much more has been learned since uh, since you know just the 90s. I know I was talking to Jim Kirkland. He was saying that you know when Jurassic Park came out, there were like four raptors known, and now there's you know dozens of species. It's just fascinating to see how much new material has come out in a in a field where it was presumed uh, that you know they kind of had learned a lot. <laughs> it, what they didn't know was un unbelievable at the time. It's been a great uh, been, been great. I mean. I, there, you know, worldwide, there's so many new kinds of dinosaurs. There, there's so many new kinds of dinosaurs that I literally cannot keep up. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm constantly seeing names and oh, what's this? I've never heard of this. Where does it come from? Yeah. Although chances are it comes from Argentina or China. <laughs> yes. Yes. Lots of good stuff there. Well, I'll leave you with the. We're almost out of time. Maybe I'll, I'll wrap with this question. I like this one because it's more uh, imaginative, perhaps than. Uh, an academic but uh, you know publishing an academic paper requires a lot of research and a lot of studying and, and testing and evaluation and it has to be peer-reviewed thoroughly investigated before they can be published and it's strict for the purposes of validity and so things like dinosaur behavior is very challenging to publish on because there's very little evidence to support how a dinosaur lived or how they spent their days and thus it'd be next to impossible to do an academic paper on behavior but I like to think that someone who has spent an entire career thinking about dinosaurs would have some things that they believed about dinosaurs that they could never prove. What are some of the things about dinosaurs you feel is true, even though you may never know for sure? One of the fascinating things is the things that I thought we would never know, mm -hmm. but we're starting to get inklings of, and that is a, a dinosaur color. Yeah. You know, I assumed that that would be forever beyond the pale, but now there's studies of melanosomes using scanning electron micrography and there's well and there and 
there's use of, of um, synchrotron um, high energy uh, synchrotron beam studies that are finding organic organometallic residues uh, that indicate pigments and all that sort of thing that we're sort of rolling back the veil there and the other thing is dinosaur physiology warm-blooded cold-blooded you know we uh, we you, you, well, there are all sorts of models now but a whole new field of paleontology is developing which is beyond my ken i i a few years ago i went into an ex svp society of urban paleontology uh session and the people were speaking a language which is a, a language of chemistry mm -hmm. <laughs> that was beyond me but yet there there's certainly claims now of chemicals uh biochemical signatures in the bones of uh of physiology of temperature of temperature regulation uh, that uh, I never dreamed uh, would be true, so, uh, po uh, possible to verify. So behaviors, yes, we, we can speculate. For the most part, we can't verify. I mean, for instance, there, there's a famous case of a fossil from Mongolia with a velociraptor and a protoceratops enmeshed, and uh, it looks like the animals died in a death struggle uh, between a, a raptor and a, and a prey, prey specimen. But yet, that's ambiguous too. It may only be scavenging. They <laughs> yes. may have died, died in the act of scavenging. You can't, there are things we, we will not know. But one should not be too dogmatic uh, because uh, there, there are surprises yet to come. And with all the progress we've made in the last 150 years, in the last uh, 20 years, in the last uh, five years, mm -hmm. who knows what it'll be like. 20 or 50 years from now. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think. I remember hearing about the, the, the biological specimens that were found. I think they were from a Hypacrosaurus, and that w might be an animal that was found in Alberta. So that could be another testament to how, how interesting, wonderful that uh, that Alberta region is and what it's yielding in terms of uh, what types of new data might be investigated from, from the remains that are found. So that's, that's really cool. Yeah, amazing, um, amazing. And uh, what's the other one? I heard that uh, there is it a Satacosaurus, and they were able to reconstruct it so accurately, and has the the plumes on its tail, and they got the the counter shading on its body, and then they found the cloaca, and there's been a whole paper that has entered. A, there's a new there's a new job out there for anybody who wants to be a paleoproctologist. Uh, they now have <laughs> the cloaca you can look into, which is literally look into it and, and see. What <laughs> See what's going on there. Uh, fascinating stuff. You're right. The world, uh, the new technologies and things that they're able to investigate the bones with are, are so different from from it. I think another one, a great example was um, the, the oviraptor egg thief. And then when they were able to finally investigate what's in those eggs, they found out they were actually oviraptors inside, not protoceratops. And they were like, oh, well, then I guess I wasn't stealing yes. eggs after all. <laughs> and it's amazing when you get the new tools, what you can do with them. Absolutely, yeah. The one thing I can say, well, one uh, that I can predict about the future, is that for many, many years to come, new types of dinosaurs will continue to be found. Uh, the current rate is very roughly uh, 40 new dinosaur discoveries reported every year. So basically, one one per week, mm -hmm. uh, and this, the, I mean, there you can project a time in the future when discoveries will begin slowing down again, but there's just no sign of it year by year by year. Mm -hmm. uh, 
uh, yeah, I can predict that next year there will be 40 new dinosaur discoveries or descriptions, not, not discoveries, but descriptions. Mm -hmm. You know, a, a discovery is like a tree falling in the woods. <laughs> it, it's not the discovery that has the impact. It's the painstaking work of description. Yes. How long does it take to the, the journey from, you know, excavation to publishing? Well, um, I'm not a fast worker, I, I have to say, but several years anyway. It, depend, it depends in part on the size of the fossil. Uh, in, in my case, with Abyceratops, it was about five, well, no, I guess the fossils came to Philadelphia in, in 1982, and I, I published on them in 1986, so mm -hmm. that was four years. I have a colleague who uh, collected a uh, sauropod uh, Dreadnoughtus from uh, Argentina, and it took him several years to get expo uh, export uh, permits from Argentina. <laughs> they shipped the th fossils to Philadelphia, prepped them, described them. That was that was a lengthy process. That mm -hmm. was well over five years. So it was closer to ten years. So if it's a small fossil of high, of high quality. It may be possible to do it in a, in a year or two, but mm -hmm. uh, but they're definitely they're definitely. Well, it sounds like the peer review process is lengthy as well. I'll see that a, a paper is submitted, but then it is published. You know, possibly twelve months or more or less between just uh, just having it written and then having it published seems to be quite a bit of time in there as well. Yeah, some journals are notoriously slow. Mm -hmm. If if you're fortunate enough to get into a, a journal like Science or Nature, then uh, it, then it's going to be a lot faster than than it may be as uh, if, uh, short as a couple of months. Uh, peer review is a slow process. Yes. Well, um, we're flat out of time, but thank you so much for all of uh, all the time you did have for me today. I really, really appreciate it. It's been wonderful. What a wonderful thing! And congratulations on a, a great career and being honored in the uh, in the in the journal. It's really really cool, and I think it's obviously well deserved. Great. Well, it's fun talking to you, Ryan. Yeah, what a Glad pleasure. It worked out. All right, I want to to make a spe very special thank you to to Dr. Peter Dodson for for coming on the show. Thank you so much. I've been looking forward to that all weekend. Thank you. All right, in the text today, we have the seventh iteration beginning, which uh, which says increasingly the mathematics will demand the courage to face its implications on page 365. Obviously, this means if you predict that life will expand and break its boundaries and do its part to be unrecallable, recall, you cannot recall a new form of life from our epigraphs, you have to at least try to recall that new form of life. That is your responsibility. Malcolm's report said, if you do this, when it falls to pieces, that demands the courage to face its implications, or in this case, responsibilities. This Malcolm quote is saying, when things go to hell, you should you know, try and fix it if it's your responsibility. This week's text is destroying the world, as we've said, spanning from pages 367 to 369. In a synopsis, Hammond believes that they've saved the world by stopping the raptors from reaching the mainland, but Malcolm says that life would survive, that life finds a way to overcome all odds. Life is the greatest power. Hammond is deluded if he thinks otherwise. Characters. Dr. Ian Malcolm. Malcolm is still in his bed, bedridden, and he's, but he's found the energy to confront Hammond again on 367. He scoffs at Hammond's worry that, quote, escaped dinosaurs might destroy the world. Malcolm becomes furious at how stupid he realizes he feels that Hammond actually is. He's always held Hammond in contempt, but he, now he realizes he overestimated Hammond, and it's time to call him out. He calls him an egomaniacal idiot intoxicated with power. 
Malcolm argues that the planet is not in jeopardy. It's 4.5 billion years old. Life has existed for 3.8 billion, beginning with bacteria. As the geomorphology and biology of the planet changed shape over billennia, if that's a word, because it sounds like a word, apparently it's been used informally in academic papers, but it's not yet in the dictionaries. Probably like dinoturbation. But anyhow, for billennia... <laughs> This has been going on. Malcolm rebuffs the concerns that radiation might end the Earth. He argues that even if everything died and Earth were, quote, clicking hot for 100,000 years, that life would survive somewhere and start all over repopulating the Earth on 368. Then Malcolm demonstrates how oxygen was once toxic, life-threateningly poisonous, but life adapted and evolved and now thrives and requires this corrosive gas like fluorine, which is used to etch glass, to live at all. It was once a waste product produced by certain plant cells about 3 billion years ago, creating a crisis on the planet, polluting the environment with deadly poisons, but life found a way. Malcolm sums up his argument with Hammond in saying, The Earth survives in perpetuity without concern for humanity. Life will survive in perpetuity through great struggles and tenacity, but mankind? We've only been here for the blink of an eye and the world will not miss us when we're gone. Quote, We haven't got the power to destroy the planet or to save it but we might have the power to save ourselves on 369. Uh, the other side of this coin is John Hammond. With the Raptors stopped and the ship turned around, Hammond has regained confidence. Through much of the past iteration, he'd been held quiet, left to face the error of his ways. But with things back in order, he begins bustling around and straightening up on 367. He suggests that they've saved the planet by stopping the Velociraptors from reaching the mainland on page 367, but Malcolm disagrees. Hammond offers that scientists believe the world is in peril, but Malcolm rebuffs that too, suggesting there isn't a single thing mankind can do to the Earth that would be as bad as what it's already survived over its existence. Then Hammond offers a radioactive scenario which might destroy the Earth, which Malcolm rationalizes through on 368, and then... He retorts against Malcolm's arguments, wondering, so what are we, hopeless, and we shouldn't care about the environment? Hammond gets irritated with Malcolm, I think we all might, uh, not realizing they're arguing totally different points on 368. He retorts that if, they were, if he were to incorporate pollutants into his argument, surely that Malcolm would agree with, but Malcolm doesn't agree to that either. We have localities. The lodge, while it's not said, the electrocuted corpses of the velociraptors are, are still hanging from the ceiling, right? If you thought they smelled bad before, <laughs> look at them now. Uh, but no mention is made of the dead, dripping, stinking velociraptor corpses. Uh, so to start this chapter, Malcolm has moved to another room in the lodge uh, to a clean bed. Presumably not beneath stinking, dripping, dead velociraptor corpses. Uh, that sounds like a good idea. I would have done that much earlier, frankly. Uh, to some bed where there weren't velociraptors breaking glass down onto your bedspread, that'd be a good, you know, maybe a move. But uh, they've done that now, so good for them. Better late than never. We have some allusions and references. The history of the world. Malcolm argues that, quote, the planet is not in jeopardy. It's 4.5 billion years old. Life has existed for 3.8 billion, beginning with bacteria. Wikipedia says the world is 4.543 billion years old, so Crichton's statement holds consistent with our latest calculations. The Smithsonian Institute says life originated 3.7 billion years ago, not 3.8 billion, as Malcolm states, but those are such huge numbers that even their exact precision is unimaginably conceivable, so, so who cares? Uh, Pandora's box. Jurassic Park really is a sort of Pandora's box, and it's Malcolm's wish to keep it closed. Biotechnology is whatever the heck was inside Pandora's box, and the A and B, filled with raptors reaching the mainland, is opening the box. By turning the boat around, Hammond sort of indicates that they've managed to keep the lid closed and thus spared the world from great harm. If I look up the Pandora myth, Zeus presented Pandora to Prometheus's brother Epimetheus 
as a punishment for Prometheus stealing fire or something like that. So Pandora was left in charge of a jar, which I guess she wasn't supposed to open, but she did open it, and it contained sickness, death, and many other unspecified evils, uh, which were then released on the world. So I guess this is like a trope on the Garden of Eden story where everybody was doing fine with blissful ignorance, but we did the forbidden thing and now we have pain and suffering, but also have knowledge too. This has a similar colloquial expression like open a can of worms or let the cat out of the bag, etc. This, you know, the meaning is opening the box commences bad and perhaps unforeseen problems. Crichton obviously borrows from this mythical structure, though he is not literally adapting the tale, just borrowing elements to evoke that familiar understanding of warning and consequences. Stylistic techniques. He again uses italics. You egomaniacal idiot in italics on 367 stresses Malcolm. He's pulling no punches now. His gentlemanly doc decorum has withered away. He's just lashing out now. It is now in italics on 368 says Malcolm about how great oxygen is. The emphasis is placed on how things change over time and that things are very comfortable with oxygen presently, but that's not always been the case. Quote, but to the earth, a hundred years is nothing, in italics on 369, says Malcolm, emphasizing how insignificant 100 years represents in geological time, and thus how insignificant humanity is to the planet. Quote, a million years is nothing, in italics, adds Malcolm, suggesting that even an unfathomable amount of time is insignificant as well. We, in italics, are in jeopardy, on 369, summarizes Malcolm. The planet and the environment and life on earth, those are secure in their survival. It's people who are at risk our ways of life that are at risk. Ellipses. In some instances, the ellipsis serves as an omission from a sentence, quote, all this happening against a background of continuous and violent upheaval, mountain ranges thrust up and eroded away, cometary impacts, volcanic eruptions, oceans rising and falling, whole continents moving, the ellipsis on 367. Here the ellipsis suggests that Malcolm could go on and on with examples of continuous upheaval, but he doesn't choose to. In another instance, an ellipsis is used as a parenthesis or a pause. Ellipsis, endlessly constant and violent change. Ellipsis, even today, the greatest geographical feature of the planet comes from two great continents colliding, buckling to make the Himalayan mountains mountain range over millions of years on 367 and 368. Put these two paragraphs together, and the ellipses are, are almost serving as parentheses, or they're just, you know, Malcolm taking a pause. Recall he's tremendously injured and significantly medicated. And then, in some cases, they're used as formal pauses. Quote, A hundred years ago, we didn't have cars and airplanes and computers and vaccines. Ellipsis. It was a whole different world on 369. By Malcolm just taking a labored breath, perhaps, before continuing. And, again, what if there was a radiation accident? Ellipsis on 368 offers Hammond, with the ellipsis forming a pause to invite Malcolm to continue the conversation. Uh, then there's uh, M-dashes. Quote, the great sweeping ages of animals. M-dash, the amphibians, the dinosaurs, the mammals, each lasting millions upon millions of years on 367. Here the M-dash is replacing punctuation, like a comma. Also notice he entirely overlooks the age of fish. And uh, again, as so, quote, on Earth, the concentration of oxygen was going up rapidly. M-dash, 5, 10, eventually 21% on 368. And again, quote, life would survive somewhere. M-dash under the soil, or perhaps frozen in Arctic ice on 368. Quote, Hammond said, well, if the ozone layer gets any thinner, M-dash, on page 368, and is cut off by Malcolm. Here, the M-dash represents an interruption, and the M-dash also acts as parentheses. Quote, and when oxygen was first produced as a waste product by certain plant cells, M-dash, say around 3 billion years ago, M-dash, it created a crisis for all other life on our planet on 368. Finally, quote, we haven't got the power to destroy the planet, M-dash, or to save it, on 369, says Malcolm, the M-dash showing that he's not arguing for one side or the other. 
He's saying the entire argument is flawed. We have some exclamations. Quote, on Earth, the concentration of oxygen was going up rapidly. 5, 10, eventually 21% on page 368 with an exclamation mark. Earth had an atmosphere of pure poison, exclamation mark, incompatible with life, exclamation mark. Here are the exclamation marks help make the argument that oxygen is a poison, which might be a bit counterintuitive to us oxygen-dependent organisms, but the exclamation is helpful in aiding Malcolm's point. Uh, we have literary techniques like metaphors. Quote, my, what intoxicating power you must have on 367, says Malcolm of Hammond's beliefs. Hammond believes that his dinosaurs, if they escaped the island, would, quote, destroy the world. But that's nonsense. This concept that Hammond is a regular person with power has become intoxicated. And now his inhibitions are lowered. His risk aversion is lowered. His good common sense is lowered. Power has impaired him. He should not be operating heavy machinery. I think this metaphor, though, with, with power, one has the ability to overcome more frustrations than those without power. The ability to move past frustrations with great power means one can get uh, one can move past frustrations without compromise. And if you're already intoxicated with power and you can do so without compromise, you can therefore be reckless. So nonetheless, the properties of intoxication are being transferred onto one who has gained power. And then dynasties are referred to. Quote, great dynasties of creatures arising, flourishing, and dying away on 367, says Malcolm, of the different animals which have come and gone. Here he employs the concept of a dynasty, which is a succession of people from the same family who play a prominent role in business, politics, or another field, and twists that to characterize animals who play a prominent role in their ecosystems. So it's a good metaphor. We like that one. Clicking hot. Quote, and the earth was clicking hot for 100,000 years on 368. Here Malcolm is suggesting that the world is clicking hot. And I'm guessing that this is metaphorically likening the temperature to not only hot, but also to radioactive. The clicking element of this description likely refers to a Geiger counter's clicking, which indicates the presence of radiation. And this type of metaphor is more specifically a synecdoche. You ready? That's a, that's a new literary term for today. A synecdoche, it's spelled S-Y-N-E-C-D-O-C-H-E, and obviously pronounced with hard Greek phonetics or something like that. A synecdoche is a subset of a subset of a metaphor. Synecdoche is a type of metonymy, which is when a literal term for one thing is applied to another with which it has become closely associated because of a recurrent relationship in common experience. An example of metonymy is when we call the crown or the scepter to stand for a king or Hollywood to stand for the film industry. That sort of thing. A synecdoche is when a part of something stands to represent the whole. Like, nice wheels means nice car. Have a smoke means have a cigarette. The part of the common experience represents the whole. In this case, the clicking represents the Geiger counter's audible report indicating high radiation. So when something's clicking hot, I believe we're to understand that it's not only hot, but destructively radioactive as well. I like that metaphor. It's just a, a tr tricky one to nail down. Uh, motifs. There's more ecological criticism. Quote, if we're gone tomorrow, the earth will not miss us. Quote, we very well might be gone, Hammond said, huffing. Yes, Malcolm said, we might. So what are you saying? We shouldn't care about the environment? No, of course not. Then what? Malcolm coughed and started, stared into the distance. Let's be clear. The planet is not in jeopardy. We are in jeopardy. We haven't got the power to destroy the planet or to save it, but we might have the power to save ourselves on 369. After laying out his grand argument for the durability of the planet and the adaptability and perpetuity of life, Malcolm says that really, ecological and environmental practices for conservation are for humanity to save itself. He was saying this back in the 80s. This isn't about saving some little tree frog in a country far, far away in the rainforest you'll never see or visit. This is about saving mankind. Though we, quote, very well might be gone, 
or in other words, doomed to extinction, left as nothing more than, quote, residents here for the blink of an eye, and, quote, gone tomorrow, and the, quote, earth will not miss us. So let it be known, life finds a way, but species go extinct all the time. This is the ecological comment that Malcolm is making. Uh, discussion. Life finds a way. Malcolm rebuffs the concern that radiation might end the Earth. He argues that even if everything died and the Earth were clicking hot for 100,000 years, that life would survive somewhere and start all over repopulating the Earth on 368. Think of that intriastic event from our news section. So he really believes, now that there are living organisms on Earth, that life will survive. Semantics. I think the problem with Malcolm's argument with Hammond is that they're arguing about totally different things. Hammond that some mistake will make the world unlivable to humans, whereas Malcolm is arguing that life will adapt and evolve to survive no matter what the world becomes. So the difference is one is arguing that mankind may not survive, while the other is arguing that life, even in its simplest form, will outlast any catastrophe. Malcolm comes close to bringing their arguments together when he says the evolutionary process would begin again, but the earth would survive our folly. Life would survive our folly. Only we think it wouldn't on 368. Here, he was very close to saying only we wouldn't survive our folly, but instead ducks back into the incredibly high concept of life in general, and instead says only we think life wouldn't survive. There's a lot of paraphrasing in that comparative quote, but uh, the fact remains, those are separate arguments, and probably why Malcolm is able to forcefully dominate the argument. Hammond apparently isn't much for you know of an orator or a debater, because he lost this argument when he lost control of what they were even fighting about earlier. But perhaps that's a continuing motif that Hammond isn't in control. Crichton tropes. Hammond comes across out of character in this chapter. He's usually emotional, rising up on the balls of his feet, commanding, controlling, and assertive. In this chapter, he's none of these things and defers to Malcolm, who is labeled Hammond's nemesis on page 71. That said, he doesn't speak with the confidence that he once did. Now he's entering into an argument isn't quite the right word because he's just prompting Malcolm to spout off about his vision for the world, Hammond isn't really in character in this chapter. He's just enabling Crichton's ambitions with Ian Malcolm's perspective. Without Hammond, Malcolm couldn't chime in on this topic. So Crichton was eager to say what Malcolm has to say in this novel. Hammond is just in this moment to prompt Malcolm to deliver Crichton's message. This isn't especially great dialogue nor characterization, but the messaging is interesting and thought-provoking. I'm glad it's in here. But let's not overlook that it's cooked up in a fairly contrived way. This is almost like when you isolate Gennaro's dialogue and it's literally just him asking questions, prompting explanations. In this scene, Hammond is just here to prompt Malcolm to deliver Crichton's closing remarks. You egomaniacal idiot! So what is Crichton saying in this tete-a-tete between Malcolm and Hammond in this chapter? Let's wrangle a few things together and make sense of it. Malcolm is a doomsayer in this novel, but at this point, he turns his perspective to cosmic relativity, showing how we're just flecks of stardust in an unimaginably vast universe, living for a period of time so brief it barely ticks on the radar. Let's be clear what Malcolm is not arguing, because that can get confusing, especially with Hammond kind of muddying the waters. Malcolm, through this novel, and Crichton in the introduction, have warned that tampering with biotechnology is like opening Pandora's box. Once it's open, there's no turning back. Quote, you cannot recall a new form of life. Crichton specifically calls our attention to in the epigraphs. But Malcolm here isn't worried about saving any particular species of animal. He's not looking to save the whales. Hammond in the film was adapted to say that he might be able to save the condor through cloning, but the argument being made isn't to save a rainforest or to save endangered animals. It's not to reduce pollution. It's not to conserve the ozone layer or diminish harmful radiation. Malcolm is ambivalent to anything that seems to exist in the here and now, in our immediate present, instead suggesting that today means nothing. 
We're just a speck and nobody's going to miss us. Hence the cosmic relativity. Take a bucket and fill it with water. Put your hand in up to the wrist. Pull it out and the hole that's remaining is a measure of how much you'll be missed. This is a lesson from Saxon White Kessinger's 1959 poem, The Indispensable Man. This is what Malcolm is talking about. Recall, Malcolm's primary argument is that life survives at all costs and that all attempts at Jurassic Park to control life will fail. But he's never been especially concerned with the world or saving it. Conversely, Hammond believes that he is making his mark on the world. I've made the argument that Hammond embodies or personifies the biotech industry outlined by Crichton in the introduction. Hammond personifies the capitalist, unregulated biomolecular industry that woos pure scientists away for capitalist purposes. Hammond believes that he's changing the world. He believes he's staking his claim. Malcolm argues the opposite in this chapter, instead saying Hammond's vision, even his aspirations to change the world, is tremendously flawed, calling him a bigger fool than he thought and he thought he was a very substantial fool. And then in this chapter, an egomaniacal idiot. Hammond hasn't the humility to know his place. He believes that he can change the world, have an impact in the world, and all he's doing is making an amusement park. You can see why Malcolm laughs at him. Instead, Malcolm argues that if, quote, we are gone tomorrow, the earth will not miss us on 369. Recall Malcolm's argument that scientists today have, quote, no humility before nature. There is only get rich quick, make a name for yourself fast philosophy in the chapter control in speaking with Ellie just before the sixth iteration on 306. And then states in this chapter, we haven't the humility to try to imagine the slow and powerful rhythms at which this planet lives and breathes. This perspective is Malcolm's vision of humility before nature, knowing our place in the cosmic universe. Later in this chapter, Malcolm challenges Ellie Sattler when suggesting that science advances and gives people power, quote, and that will force everyone to ask the same question, what should I do with my power? Which is the very question science says it cannot answer on 313. What has Hammond done with his power? He set up his entire business proposition for the sake of, quote, making lots and lots of money, he tells us in the chapter Hammond on page 62, and especially thwarting any thoughts of, quote, helping mankind, saying, quote, I would never help mankind, and in the chapter Bungalow on page 200. When Malcolm retorts, we haven't got the power to destroy the planet or to save it, but we just might have the power to save ourselves, he reveals Crichton's argument, for this novel, the only future for mankind is to use the power at our hands to save ourselves. I'll argue Crichton's argument in this chapter, as bemused by Malcolm, is that the only future for humanity is employing whatever power we have to save ourselves. But this is one of the big questions that Jurassic Park asks of its readers. What will I do with my power? Well, the next big question this, uh, this book asks is, is coming up uh, very soon. Before we sign off today, I want to say thank you again to Dr. Peter Dodson. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Sorry that the cat cried through so much of that interview. My cat's terrible. You were terrific. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And I want to sign off today also thanking you for joining me. Um, if you want to read along in the book, we're getting to the end here. Add some thoughts to what we've been discussing on the show or be a guest on the show and chat with me about anything you like about Jurassic Park. You can do that by connecting with me. I'm at ryansrogers at gmail.com. If you'd like to be a guest, drop me a line and we can try and set something up. We can rehash, tear down, gush over, and chit-chat about any part of the book or also not the book, all you'd like. Jurassic Podcast is part of the Spring Chickens banner of amateur intellectual properties, including the Spring Chickens funny pages, the Tomb of the Undead graphic novel, the Second Lapse graphic novelettes, the Infantry, and the Worst of them all, the King Street Capers. And you can find links to all that baggage in the show notes by visiting the schickens.blogspot.com. Or finding us on Facebook at facebook.com slash springchickencapers or me on my Twitter at rogersryan22. Thank you dearly for tuning in to the Jurassic Park cast, the Jurassic Park podcast where we talk about the novel Jurassic Park and also not that too.
Until next time.